Go ahead and open your Bibles up to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be going through verses 3 through 12 today. As you're heading over there, uh, let me ask you, how many of you guys remember the, the cereal box where you would get all of your box tops and you'd mail them in for the decoder ring, right? You guys? All right, some of you are old enough to remember that. Some of you guys may remember, you remember the, the Sears wish book? Yeah, you remember, you remember what it said on the order form? Allow how long for delivery? Do you remember? Six to eight weeks. I get mad when Amazon stuff's not here in two days, right? I, had, I ordered something this morning that said it's not going to come till Thursday. <gasps> Are you serious? But how many of you remember waiting to collect all those box tops and get your decoder ring or waiting the six to eight weeks for the Sears Wishbook thing to arrive and being disappointed when it got there? Somehow you, you didn't turn into Dick Tracy even though you had the watch, Right? Some of you guys are old enough to remember that. Uh, some of you guys, though, you're not to that point. You're like, I have no idea what any of these words are that you're using. Um, so in case that's the case, all of us have had the experience where we have saved up money for something, and we, we really wanted it, and we thought it was going to make our golf game better, or it was going to help us catch more fish, or it was going to be a, a newer, shinier, whatever it was that we were excited about, right? And you get it, and you're real excited about it for a couple of days, but it's turns out to not be all that it was cracked up to be. You ever had that experience? You've been looking for that new house. You've been looking for that new car. Doesn't take long for some wayward cart in the Walmart parking lot to put a big old dent in the side of it. See, everything that we have in life, everything we look forward to is going to disappoint you every single time. Some of you, it's not so much stuff. Maybe it's life stages. Man, if I could just get out of school, if, if, I, could just, if I could just get married... If we could just have kids, if, man, if the kids could just get out of the, the diaper stage, if, if the kids could just get out of school and get out of the house, if I could just make it to retirement. Now, there's beautiful things that happen in each of those stages, but the reality is, if you're honest, there's something disappointing with each of those. Marriage is a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. Raising kids is a whole lot harder than you thought it was going to be. And from what I understand, it doesn't get better when they leave the house because now they can make even worse decisions and they listen to you less than they ever did. And then you think, well, I I can finally get to the point where I can retire. Right, and then your body doesn't work like it's supposed to. See, everything that we look forward to in life is disappointing. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? My job as your pastor to just really send you out for the rest of the week. See, here's why I want to do that, though. Because there is literally only one thing in all of human history that will never disappoint. And that is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We need it today more than ever. And so what we want to do is we want to look at what Peter says about this hope that we have in Christ. Now, as we're going through, uh, to give you a full idea, remember we've been talking about the theme of 1 Peter is that we are living as exiles. As grateful we, as we are for the sacrifices that have been made for us to be Americans and have the freedom that we have, as grateful as we are for those things, we recognize first and foremost that our citizenship, if we're, if we're followers of Christ, our citizenship is first and foremost in the kingdom of God, in heaven. And that although we love the fact that we get to live here as Americans, at the same time, our allegiance, our primary devotion is to the kingdom of God, which makes us exiles on earth. 
That means there's stuff that's going to make us uncomfortable, things that aren't like home should be. As we said in 1 Peter, he's going to be calling us to live in a very different way than the world around us, living more like home than we do the culture here. And he's getting ready to call us to do some incredibly difficult things. We start that in the very next, chapter, next section next week. So here's what he's doing before he does. He's beginning with a, a doxology. He's praising God, thanking God for who he is and for what he's done. And as he does, the main thing that he's focusing on thanking God for in this passage is for giving us a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to see that that hope actually has kind of three different tenses to it. There's a a future inheritance that we don't have yet. There's a present joy that we have now. And we're actually building on a past heritage that goes all the way back to the prophets in the Old Testament. So as we see that, what I'm hoping is, and I think what, what Peter's doing here is giving us an anchor so that when we sit here and say, I can't do that, that's too hard. He's bringing us back to the fact that there's a hope that underlies everything that we say and do. So my challenge for you this morning is to dig deep into this hope, to really rest your soul in what Christ has done for you and what's coming next as Peter blesses God for it, okay? So as he's pointing to the future, past, present, as we honor God for his work, he's going to give us this anchor to hold on to. He's reminding us that any of us who are part of our family, the, listen, certain verse 3. Go ahead, let's dive in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, he's starting off blessing God the Father because of, he's done this incredible thing because of his great mercy. I mean, we could preach a whole passage or a whole sermon just off like this one verse. There's, there's so much rich truth in this. God is merciful, not just like barely merciful, like, eh, okay, I'll let it go. He's rich in mercy. Whenever you think of the, 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 the goodness of God, any of these big things that, that Paul or Peter describe about attributes of God, about the riches of his grace and uh, uh, his great mercy, here's the, the mental image that I want you to have in your head. How many of you guys remember the old cartoon DuckTales? Okay, do you guys remember the cartoon DuckTales? Ebenezer Scrooge, okay? Uncle Scrooge um, had this vault. He would open the vault door, and he had a diving board because the vault was full of gold coins, right? And he would go swimming through his gold coins. That's the picture that I have of God's great mercy. It's not just that he's scraping off the bottom of the pan to give you what little bit he's got left. It's out of the richness of who he is. Out of his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again. You have a new birth. You're not who you used to be. He said to a living hope. Why is it a living hope? I love this. It's, it's a dynamic hope. It's not a static hope. It's a living hope because it's a living Savior. It's based off the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. See, I, I don't know about you guys, but I hope it doesn't rain much this week. We had plenty of it last week, and I'm ready for some sunshine. You know, I hope that gas prices go down. I hope that things get better, and I hope that God brings a swift end to a lot of the evils we see in our world. But you know what? I have no certainty that any of those things are going to happen. I have no ability to control the weather. 
I have no ability to control the gas prices. I have no ability to stop Vladimir Putin from invading Ukraine. I have no ability to do any of these things. I don't know what's going to happen with any of that. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's not that kind of hope. It's not that wish. It's a certainty. Based on the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, I have a certain hope that I'm going to receive some incredible things because of God's great mercy. We're only one verse into this. We could probably call it here, right? Let's dive in. Let's look at it a little bit further, okay? The first thing that we're going to focus on is the future aspect of this. We have a future inheritance. This is the the hope that's really the the future aspect of this, okay? Dive back in in verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pause right there. By the way, uh, we're having a, if you notice our version that we use, the, the CSB that we're using, breaks this in a lot of different places. This whole thing is one sentence in Greek, okay? Uh, like, I think verses 3 through 9, at least, are all one sentence in Greek. Um, so they're going to put some breaks in there to make it a little bit more palatable. So we're going to go through it that way. As we're tracking through, we see we have this future inheritance. Although everything in our life has let us down, and it always will. Okay, Again, that's my job as your pastor to help you see life rightly. You know, life is going to disappoint you. The one thing that never will is the inheritance that is ours in Christ. Now, what's that mean? What's that look like? Or, or is there you know, some kind of deed that I'm going to get when I get there? Hey, listen, God doesn't give us a whole lot of details about it. There, there's a lot of things we don't know about heaven, about exactly what our inheritance will be, but I can guarantee you it's going to be worth it. You know why? Because it's based off the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. The God who created the universe, God who sustains the universe, promises us an inheritance that will never let us down, that won't wear out, or won't disappoint us in some way. Look at how he rephrases it there in verse 4. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How many of you guys bought strawberries this week? Okay. Man, this, it's strawberry season. They're delicious. How many of you have had that wonderful experience where you bought those strawberries, and then about four or five days later, you found them in the back of the fridge? You forgot all about them, and they're hairy, right? They are growing some kind of something that could be the next pandemic, right? If you've ever bought a banana and you thought, look, this banana looks fantastic. It's green. It's not even ripe yet, and then you set it on your counter while you're unloading the groceries, and you turn around, and the only thing it's good for is banana bread. It's already just turned to mush. That's the idea of perishable. Everything that we have is going to fade away in some point. Imperishable, though, is what he describes our inheritance as. That means it can't get damaged or marred. So our inheritance isn't like the strawberries that you bought yesterday. Our inheritance will literally never be dinged, never be damaged, never be messed up in any way, shape, or form. It is imperishable forever. Forever. I'm going to go there. There was a show that was popular on NBC several years ago called The Good Place. I don't necessarily recommend it um, because there's a lot of content in it that's very immoral. 
However, at the end of the show, uh, the whole story is about these people who, who thought they had, or they had died and they thought they made it to the good place. But it turned out, well, it was actually the bad place. Sorry, I just spoiled season one for you if you were going to watch it. However, they go through the whole thing. They eventually make it to the good place. They eventually make it to the best conception of heaven that they've got. And it's a place where you can do literally anything you want. You want to go race go-karts with monkeys? Go race go-karts with monkeys. You can, any pleasure that you want, anything that you want, you, you want to taste what ambrosia would have tasted like, you can have it. Whatever it is you want, whatever your heart's desire is. And what they find is people who've been there in the good place for 100 years or 1,000 years are bored because they've done everything. They've tried everything. There's nothing left. Michael Schur, who's the, the writer of the show, the best way he could end this was when you reach the point in the good place where you know that you have, have done everything you can and, and you're just done, you walk through a door in the woods and you disappear. You're annihilated. That's it. See, we have no ability to conceive of unending joy. We just can't. That's what Michael Schur was writing as he writes this. It's like, well, eventually it's going to get boring. No, see, this is the thing. God is described in Psalms as a God who at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. There's going to be continual, unending, undiminished joy forever. And we can't wrap our minds around that because everything in our life has always let us down. I mean, think about how many times you had an expectation of something and how it was going to go, and it didn't measure up. Think about that thing that you loved to do that you eventually just got tired of doing and put away. I mean, how many of you guys have half-started craft projects around the house, right? How many unfinished things? I mean, I've got like all of these ink pens where I was going to take up lettering at one point. I've got a 3D printer downstairs. I use one of them, but I've got another one that I haven't even played with in like six or eight months because I got frustrated with it. Uh, You know, that's never going to happen. This inheritance that we have is imperishable. It's undefiled. He said, that means it's going to be perfectly pure without any stain or any trace of sin. This morning, I didn't turn on a whole lot of lights because our, our house has got good natural light. And then I went outside to take our dog out, and I looked at my pants. And I was, where did all of this come from? We've got a dog and a cat, and it's like these pants are better than lint rollers at attracting pants, uh, lint. And like it, but the inheritance that we have in heaven is never going to be defiled. Never going to find a rust spot on it. Never going to have to polish the silver always going to be perfect. This is what's waiting for us. It's unfading. It means it'll never wither. Its beauty or luster will never fade away. We've got an azalea bush right by the front door. It's a beautiful white azalea bush. It bloomed a few weeks ago, and it was absolutely gorgeous when the whole thing was just covered with these white blooms. You know what it's covered with now? Brown, shrivelly, gross things, Right? That's what we know life to be. It shrivels, it withers, it fades. But the hope that we have in Christ, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. By the way, interesting thing about this, when I typed undefiled into my software when I typed my thing, it said that's not a word. (laughs) That's what I love. Because there's nothing in our life that's not defiled. 
undefiled doesn't exist anywhere except in Christ. Everything is tainted by sin except for the inheritance that's our hope. You say, Sean, well, that's great, but how do I know that I'm going to get it? Well, look at it in verse 4. Inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's guarded in heaven for you. God is guarding your inheritance in heaven right now. It's earmarked, set aside for you. This salvation that we enjoy. By the way, the bulk of our inheritance, I think, is that pure, perfect, unrestrained relationship with Christ. Seeing him fully as he is, being fully known, being in his presence without any stain of sin. God's holding on to that right now for you. It's waiting. It's being kept in heaven for you. Well, but Sean, how do I know that I'm going to get there? I mean, it's great that it's there, but I'm here. Verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding you. You realize God's the one who saves us, right? God's the one who saves us. It's by his grace and by his mercy. He draws us into a relationship with himself. And if God's the one who starts it, God's the one who guards it, God's the one who's going to finish it. So that's why our hope isn't like, I hope it's not going to rain today. Our hope is, I know that there's an inheritance that I'm looking forward to that I don't have yet because God is holding on to it in heaven and he's holding on to me. He's holding on to me. Guys, on those days when you're absolutely heartbroken over what you see in the world, or even more those days when you're absolutely heartbroken over what you see in your own life, where you see the sin in your own heart and you say, there's no way. If you're in Christ, if you've saved, if God drew you to himself, and you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, and you're committed to following him, your citizenship is already there. You're already there. He's got your inheritance waiting for you. It's there. So when life around you is absolutely falling apart, we have this constant hope that there's an inheritance that's waiting for me. Think about the worst problem you've got. What if it never goes away? Some of you battle chronic illnesses. And the doctor can maybe treat it for a little bit, but it's going to get worse. What if that thing lasts for the rest of your life? What's that going to do to your hope? Our hope isn't here. My hope is not that I'm going to wake up tomorrow and my low back's not going to hurt. It would be great if it did. My hope is that one day, if that thing takes my life, I'm going to open my eyes in the presence of my Savior. When this thing finally kills me, whatever it is that's going to do it, from, uh, y'all watching me yelling and screaming, I'm probably going to die of a heart attack in the pulpit, and I go and apologize in advance. But hey, that's going to be great for me. That's, that's where I want to go. Like, I seriously, I know it'd be really disturbing for everybody who's there. I heard about a guy that actually did die in the pulpit one time, and it really bothered everybody in the church, but it'd be great for me. Hey, Jesus, I was just talking about you. I mean, like... But see, we can make those jokes because we have an inheritance. There's no fear in this. 
Now, yeah, there's understandable fear in, in the process and being concerned about how it's gonna, what's going to happen before I get there. But guys, listen, we have a, a certain hope because Jesus died on the cross and was buried and was raised to give me new life. Then I'm going to be raised with him. I'm going to have this salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And God's going to guard me all the way from the moment that I trusted in him all the way to the point where he presents me to himself in glory. That's our constant hope as exiles. As we sit here and we wring our hands and we lament over the sin we see in the world around us, our hope is not that we're going to elect the right people, although we're going to pray and we're going to vote and we're going to see God work, hopefully, through our people that we're putting into office. But our ultimate hope is not that D.C. is going to get their act together. Our hope is not that Richmond's going to figure it all out. Our hope is that one day Jesus as the King of Kings is going to welcome us into his presence in heaven, or even better, one day he's coming back to earth to say, hey, enough with all of this. I'm putting a stop to it. That's our hope. Our hope is not that it's going to get better here. We pray for it to get better. We vote for it to get better. We love our neighbors well. Remember, that's what I'm talking about, guys. When we go through this, you're going to see nowhere does the word vote appear here. And I think it's in, in view. But Peter's going to challenge us to live the gospel out in every relationship we have. To tell the world around us about the king that we serve, the place where we're actually from. And as we do that, we do that with this hope, this certainty that says no matter what takes place, I'm going to heaven with him. Period. Now, here's what's interesting. He says that this is a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Sean, if I've come to Christ, am I not already saved? You are. That's where we get into one of the tensions that we talk about in the New Testament. It's this tension that we call the already but not yet. Okay? There is an already aspect of our salvation. From the very moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, the the moment he saves you, the moment he regenerates you, the moment you're there, that you're right with God, you're in the kingdom of heaven from that moment on. So when I was nine years old and I prayed to receive Christ on the back steps there at Main Street Baptist Church in downtown Christiansburg, when God saved me in that moment, from that moment on, there's a certainty that I would be in his presence forever. If I had died walking across the parking lot, I would have immediately gone to his presence, just like Billy Graham did, okay? But there's aspects of this that are still not yet. I've had some times with Jesus where I've been reading, his, or reading the Bible or praying or sharing the gospel or, or just where you could almost just feel his presence, you know, where he was right there. But I got to say, That's not the normal day in and day out. There's a lot of times I sit down to read my Bible, and I'll pray and ask God to show me something from his word. And I'll go through and I'll read it. The heavens don't open and a beam of light shine on a page, you know. It's just normal. But there's a day when the not yet is going to be the now. There's a day when those little glimpses, those little tastes that I've had of of that relationship with Christ, of being in his presence, that's going to be forever. It's never going to go away. It's never going to fade. It's never going to get diminished. It's never going to get dinged. It's not going to get dented. It's not going to get rusty. It's never going to happen. Now, here's what's interesting. We have a future inheritance that's our hope. 
But because of this future inheritance, Peter goes on to say that we have a present joy. We have a present joy. Pick back up in verses 6 through 9. You rejoice in this, in this inheritance, in, in what God has done in causing you to be born again into this new relationship with Christ, this new life. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And here's where it gets really interesting. This is one of the things that you see that makes the life of an exile different than the life of those who live here. See, what you find through this passage is that joy and grief can coexist in the life of a believer. You see, it's possible, and we should. Like I said, this week, the news has broken my heart, and it should break yours. All across every headline is sin. Whether it's sin in the church, sin in the world, sin in government, sin in whatever. Every headline is stained by sin. And that should break our heart. We mentioned that that life is in exile last week. We said there's going to be relationships that are going to be strained because you follow Jesus and your friend or your family doesn't. Those things are not going to make us happy where we say, well, praise the Lord, right? There's grief in lost relationships. There's grief in heartache. But because of the tastes that we have of this inheritance that we will one day receive, the fullness of salvation, there's an undercurrent of joy that runs through it all. In case you want some good examples of that, the Bible's my place to go for examples because we know that they're accurate. If you were to look through the book of Acts, you find several. Uh, this, probably one of the most astonishing to me is Acts chapter 5. The apostles were arrested, they died, they were threatened, and they were beaten for preaching Jesus. Okay? They were being actively persecuted. Like, okay, and stop and think about that for a second, because we, we say things like that. I have actually never been in a physical fight. Okay? So I, I literally don't know what it feels like to get punched in anger. I mean, you know, like I've wrestled with friends in the backyard and stuff like that. And uh, I've had some, some kids one time get like a wild swing. But like actually like get into a fight, I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like to be literally whipped or to be beaten with a cane pole like guys would have been. But they had physically been beaten, okay? And here's what it says. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. They went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, which was the people who arrested them and beat them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Jamie, leave that up for a second. Here's here's the thing that we don't catch about that. Their society was what's described as an honor-shame society. Now, our society is trending more that way. We get in that discussion later. But we don't typically think of honor-shame. The, the, the clearest example in our mind would be like somewhere like Japan, you know, wherever there's a lot of things about face and about saving face and not bringing dishonor on your family. Um, if you've seen, uh, it, it's China and it's 
really weirdly taken out of context, but Mulan. You see the, the honoring the family and ancestor worship and stuff like that. So the, the Jewish culture was a similar honor-shame kind of culture. In other words, it wasn't about legal guilt as much as it was about bringing shame on yourself and shame on your family. You would be, you would be shunned by your family if you brought shame and things like that. So, he, so when they say they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name, that's the name of Jesus, for claiming the name of Christ, they rejoiced that they were going to become social outcasts and that their families would leave them, they would lose businesses. They rejoiced even in that because they were able to do that for Christ. I dare say that I don't even have a taste of what that looks like. They rejoiced that they were worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of We see it some in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen's vision. But then jumping down to Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas had been preaching the gospel in Philippi. They ended up getting arrested, getting beaten again, and then thrown into jail for the night. So how did they respond? Well, Acts chapter 16, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. What's your reaction when you're in pain? I mean, these guys, listen, human rights was not a thing for the Romans, right? They didn't care. Now, they get in trouble because they didn't realize that Paul was a Roman citizen. That, it's fun to watch how he rubs it in their face later. But at that point, they just really didn't care. So they roughed them up, throw them in prison, and their response is to sing, to praise God, to pray. Now, I imagine every time Paul rolled over, he winced. Every time Silas's back pulled and one of those wounds got caught on his tunic, but that hurt. There was grief there. They were suffering trials. But underneath that was a current of joy that couldn't be taken away. You see this as well when you look at stories in the persecuted church. I'd encourage you, uh, get on the website for the Voice of the Martyrs. They're an organization that is doing work with the persecuted church around the world. You scroll down, kind of tool around a little bit, you can find stories. You can read stories about an Iranian pastor who was thrown in prison. So he started reciting as much of the Bible as he could and writing it out. Then they started having... Uh, people smuggle leaves of, uh, or chapters of the Bible in, written, handwritten in English because the guards couldn't read English. So then they copied them in their notebooks that they had in the prison and started distributing copies of the New Testament. They got in so much trouble that he eventually got thrown into the lowest part of the prison. It's down in the basement. It's, uh, they, the, in Arabic, it's literally hell is what they describe. Like they, that's the name they have for that part of the prison. They put him around a bunch of drug addicts and gave them drugs because they knew that this pastor had struggled with addiction in the past and they wanted to make him fall. Yet he continued to witness to them. He continued to share the gospel with them. Eventually got put in solitary confinement. And finally, one day he was eventually released and they had to flee the country for their safety. But now he sits from a safe location and reaches back out to Iranian believers to share the gospel, to encourage them to grow.
We don't get it, guys. But what you find as you read that man's stories and all the other stories you read on that blog is this joy in the midst of the suffering. As though we suffer grief for various trials. But, but notice what, how Peter describes this joy. Go back again. Jamie, I'm going to skip over a verse or two. But jump down to verse 8. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This joy is inexpressible. There's no words to be able to describe the joy. Now, guys, this is what you find around older believers. I've had the privilege over my life of being around a lot of people who love Jesus well into their later years. And there's a depth and a seasoning to their faith. That's what he talks about there in verse 7, where he says that your faith is being tried like, like gold. It's being refined. That as these trials are pressing in, it's proving that Jesus is worth it. It's deepening your faith. And when you're around senior saints who have been walking with Jesus for longer than you've been alive, you realize that there is a joy that's carried them through every grief. It's carried them through every pain. That God has shown himself faithful time and time and time again. I can't even put it to words. It's inexpressible. It's glorious. In other words, it's got a taste of the glory that's to come. It's got a taste of that glory that will be fully revealed when Jesus is revealed. So here, let's just stop right here for a second. Would you describe your life as being filled and underwritten with this inexpressible and glorious joy? Or how about let's make it a little bit maybe more accurate. Would your wife say that your life is filled with an indescribable joy? Would your kids? Would your roommates? Would your mom and dad? Or are you just mad just sad all the time. Again, guys, there's a place for lament. Listen, I, I, I'm not good at lament because I, I like to be happy and I like everybody to be happy with me. So lament is hard for me. But the reality is there is a time and a place for us to weep with those who weep. There's a time for us to mourn over sin in our own hearts and the lives of the world around us. But even as we mourn, because of our future inheritance that's coming, we have joy. Now, here's what's neat about this. This inheritance and all, this is not some idea that was just cooked up in the first century. See, Peter says, not only do we have this future inheritance and a present joy, we also stand on a past heritage. On a past heritage. Read verses 10 through 12 with me. Concerning this salvation, right? Now, Pause real quick. One thing we didn't really talk about last week as we're going through 1 Peter is keep in mind that Peter is writing to Gentiles. And in case you're not familiar with that, in the Old Testament, you have God's unique covenant with his people, Israel, the Jews, the Hebrews. That, that's God's special people. The Gentiles are everybody else, okay? If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And so I think probably everybody in this room is a Gentile as far as I'm aware, Okay? In the Old Testament, God had a unique relationship with the Jews. 
And although Gentiles could be saved, they could never enjoy the fullness of the relationship that the Jews had with God. There was a unique way in which he'd call the nation of Israel to himself. However, in the new covenant that Jesus has made, Jews and Gentiles together enjoy all of the benefits of the covenant. Okay? So here's what he's saying. He's using language here as he's talking to these Gentile Christians, saying, you guys are experiencing the fullness of what God promised to his people all the way back in the Old Testament. Concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Now, I know a lot of you have grown up in church and you've heard these things for years and years and years and years and years. The salvation that God has given to us by His grace, by His mercy, and causing us to be born again to a living hope is revolutionary, world-changing truth. So much so that the Old Testament prophets who got a glimpse into the fact that something was coming, Isaiah, as he was pinning the words that God gave him to write, as Jeremiah was writing these things, or, or Daniel was writing about the coming of the Son of Man, they would look at those prophecies and say, I, I don't understand I don't, I don't see how this is going to happen. And, and maybe some of those prophecies had some fulfillment during their day, but, but still there was something that just wasn't. And Peter says God revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. Gentile believers living in Asia Minor in AD 60 and Gentile believers living in Christiansburg, Virginia in 2022 those prophecies that they made as they told about the sufferings that Christ would endure and the glories that would come after his resurrection, those were for us. That ought to humble you. That ought to humble me. That God would make Ezekiel go through crazy stuff so that I could understand the salvation that he would bring. Now, I'm going to get into the realm of conjecture for a minute just because who I am. Do you ever think there's a moment in when maybe when, when the crucifixion was happening, when God got Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Daniel and some of them together and said, that's it. And they step back and say, he's the suffering servant. Jesus is going to, I thought that was the nation. I didn't, I didn't, you mean to tell me that he's the one who would take all of my sin and iniquity? Your, your plan was that your son would do that? Can't you see Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Hosea and all of them gathered on the throne saying, God, you did so much more with this than we could have ever imagined. Hey, Micah, you remember how I said I was going to be born in Bethlehem? Here he is. This is it. This is it. 
And it was revealed to them that they weren't serving themselves. They were serving you. So that someday somebody would stand up and say, hey, listen, God loved you so much that he would send his own son to be born in Bethlehem. That he would be exiled into Egypt so that God would say, out of Egypt I have called my son. That he would live in Nazareth. That he would minister in Galilee. That he would heal the lame and the blind and the sick. And he would raise the dead. And one day he himself would hang on the cross to die for our sin. And he would take his iniquity or our iniquity upon himself. And by his stripes we would be healed. The prophets were putting this together so that you could see how great a salvation God has given you. It's built on a past heritage that gives us a present joy as we look to the future inheritance that we'll one day enjoy when we see the salvation of God in its fullness. In case it hadn't gotten you yet, that last line, angels long to get a glimpse into this. You know, the angels that are in the presence of God since the very moment he made them, the angels who don't have sin, so, so they see God fully as he is. The angels that, that fly around the throne of God, crying out, holy, 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 so loud that the doors shake. They look at the salvation that God's given us and wish they could understand it better. I, I don't know what that means. Some have said it's there's that experience of being forgiven that they can't understand because they've never had to be forgiven. Maybe that's it. That's probably the most likely idea. But there is something about our salvation that is so great that not even angels fully understand it. That's our hope. Our hope is not that inflation is going to go down and your paycheck is going to go up. Our hope is not that wars are going to cease. Our hope is not that the right people are going to be elected. Although, again, we pray, we vote, we serve, we love, we do all of those things so that we're bringing the kingdom of God to bear on earth as best we can. But ultimately, our hope is that one day there's an inheritance that's waiting for us based on the living Savior. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. I'm going to give you some time to respond to what God said here. I want you to take some, some time and think, you know, first off, do you even have this hope? Has there been that time in your life, not where you started going to church, but where you actually turned from what you know to be sin to turn to following Jesus and came into his kingdom? If not, then that's where you need to start today. This is the promise and the hope that's available to you because Jesus died for your sins, was raised to give you life, and is inviting you into his kingdom. So would you today make that decision to follow him? If so, just tell him that. There's no magic set of words. Just respond and talk to God about what he's doing in your heart and your need for him. But if you're here this morning and you know Jesus is your Savior and Lord, or if you're watching us online and, and you know you have that relationship with him, where's your hope today? Maybe you've been thinking, well, if I could just get to that next stage, if we could just make it to this. 
can I just call you to look up a little, not, not right now physically, but just in, in your heart, look beyond those things to the hope that will never fail, that will never fade, that no matter what happens, there's an inheritance waiting for you. The salvation of your soul. Maybe you're enduring some kind of difficult trial right now. Would you ask God to fill you with joy in the midst of it? To get your your eyes off of the pain, the heartache, not dismissing it, not denying it, but in it, allowing God to refine your faith to give you joy. Would you ask God to remind you again of the importance of the salvation he's given you? One that the prophets wanted to see. One that angels don't even fully understand. And yet he's revealed to you. As you rest in the goodness of God. I'm going to give you just a minute to do business with God there where you are. If you need to talk to me, I'll be down front. If not, I'll close this in prayer in just a few moments. Father, we thank you that we have a living hope that's based on a living Savior. The world around us needs that hope. As we live as exiles here on earth, waiting for your return for us individually or for your people in your return, God, we ask that you would help us to be able to point people to the hope that's found in Christ. Let our joy shine through our grief. Let our focus on the future inheritance that we have in Christ point us beyond this life to what you want to do and help us to use that to point others to you. Thank you that in the midst of all of the heartache of our world, You are our living hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.